Listener Production. Hello, it is the 7th of July. Happy Friday to you. It's Jan Friend with you. And as you know, we're trying something different this week and bringing you the headlines in the second half of the episode. And this includes how many users have already signed up to Twitter's rival threads. I spent many hours on it last night. The full story is coming up around the 12-minute mark. If you want to skip ahead to the headlines, go ahead and do that. Of course, if you have any thoughts on the format of the show this week, let us know on our Insta page. But first, do our deep dive. This is one that I worked on because it's of interest to me. Last night, Queensland announced plans banning smartphones in state schools from next year. Now, that's significant because it means that by the ACT, every state and territory in Australia has now introduced a blanket ban on phones in both primary and high schools. It seems like a no-brainer given how distracting and harmful smartphones can be to kids and teens. But there are experts who don't agree that a blanket ban is the way to go. And some of the arguments they make, not unreasonable. Before we get to that, though, let's hear from someone who was instrumental in bringing about the ban in several states. Michael Carr-Gregg is a child psychologist. He's pretty adamant that governments should ban smartphones in state schools from first bell to last. Michael, welcome to the briefing. Talk us through your position. Why, Why do you hold that view? The experience of leading the report for the New South Wales government meant that I talked to lots of schools who had already done this. And the lived experience of many schools who've done this, they were saying to me, there's far less distraction in class. Uh, There's less cyberbullying in schools. There is an increase in academic performance. And the students and the parents and teachers were all generally much happier. There was an increase in socialisation at lunchtime and at recess. You're pretty adamant about banning phones, period. You say do it from first bell to last bell. Was there ever a world where you considered potentially not banning it entirely, maybe banning it for some classes, but having it at recess? Why the blanket ban for you? Well, the blanket ban actually had a caveat, and the caveat was that there were some occasions where teachers felt that it was appropriate for kids to use mobile phones on particular occasions in particular lessons, and that was fine. That was uh, not a problem. The blanket ban came from trying to remove any ambiguity. So there are some schools where, for example, young people in year 11 and year 12 are permitted to use from certain times The schools were saying to me that when they did that, life was so complicated. This way, it's much more straightforward. And as I said, the lived experience of schools that had done that said it was much cleaner, much simpler. And the young people, if they need to contact their parents at home, could go through the office and it really wasn't a problem. That was child psychologist Michael Carr-Gregg there. Well, Dr. Jason Zagami is a senior lecturer at the School of Education and Professional Studies at Griffith University. He has a slightly different take here, and dare I say a less popular one. 
Jason, welcome to the briefing. You are outnumbered because various experts, principals, state governments, they say that a blanket ban is the way to go. So why are they wrong? Well, there's two main aspects. One is that students need to learn about how to use these devices in order to cope with life. They're a ubiquitous part of our society today, for better or for worse. Everyone uses them for a whole range of purposes in all of their interactions with others, with government to identify themselves as part of their general social interactions. And if we have a role in schools to prepare students for life, then that is a fundamental aspect that we need to be preparing them for. And simply taking them out of schools completely as a blanket ban means that schools are going to be less able to be able to do that. The second aspect is that they are a fantastic resource And we want to teach students how to use them productively as a powerful computing device connected to the internet and with a whole lot of other capabilities, such as being able to take videos and photographs and recordings as an e-book reader, as a way of answering questions through the internet. And predominantly today, as the new artificial intelligence technologies come on board, it's becoming a personal tutor. So all of these fundamental capacities to support the learning process in schools are also being taken away by the blanket removal of devices from schools. Is your argument that, you know, phones, are, smartphones are a ubiquitous and important and relevant part of our lives and we need to learn how to use them better in life in general and so we need that also to be the case in schools. We need to be taught how to prepare ourselves for a life with smartphones and blanket banning them won't allow us to do that. Have I, am I in the ballpark of what you're saying? Correct. For two aspects. One is for their life outside of school, um, because they are still going to be using their smartphone devices once they leave the school gate. But if they're not taught how to manage and utilise those appropriately, so when it's appropriate to use them, when it's not appropriate, how to use them appropriately, then that is going to be left to parents or to the workforce to be able to then teach students how to utilise this technology. And as adults, we're not that great at using them appropriately now. So We're just going to be replicating those problems and magnifying them without any support from the education system, apart from some theoretical perspectives on it. But in schools, Mm. students can practice and learn how to use the devices in a managed, controlled way where they can make mistakes, they can be corrected, and it's just part of a learning process. Mm, It's almost a training ground on how to use smartphones in the right way. I guess some of the issues that Uh, principals and teachers have brought up because smartphones have been a part of life and the life of students for um, many, many years, if not decades now. One of the issues that they've brought up is that they've tried in many schools to work with smartphones, to use them, you know, in a really good way without having to impose a blanket ban. And it just hasn't worked. Students remain distracted. Um, Some principals and teachers report cases of online bullying, for example. So, and this is not all schools and principals, but there are a lot who say that just bring a blanket ban in and that will make things easier on them. What do you make of that? Oh, I'm not at all against banning the devices or restricting the devices in certain circumstances. If the students are not using them appropriately, it's part of the educational process to remove their access and use of those devices. That's absolutely part of the, of the learning process. So as we go forward... And as we become more and more reliant upon these technologies into the future, it's going to exacerbate that problem. So schools do need to learn how to cope with the devices, and they do. 
Originally, email was banned in schools. Then the internet. Calculators were banned for many years. We learned how to cope with utilising those technologies. It's not easy. It's, it's a difficult process, as we're seeing in society and how to cope with them. But if schools are not going to be part of that process, then no one really is. And that's going to be an ongoing problem for society. It seems like, like I said at the beginning, you, you seem a little bit outnumbered here. The state governments have decided <laughs> that a blanket ban is is the way to go. So it's it's happening. You know, that train has left the station. How do you feel about that? Um, I see it as a temporary process. All technologies are initially banned in schools. Of course, schools are by their nature conservative. So they take time to look at new changes and see how to cope with them and to manage them in an effective way. And I have no doubt that schools will do that with mobile devices as well. Because technology doesn't stand still. We're going to see increased ubiquity of these devices, not less. Particularly with the AI aspects coming on board, they're going to be increasingly part of our lives in everything that we do. Being able to purchase from a tuck shop in the future may require them to have their mobile devices with them in order to be able to make purchases or to identify themselves on various websites and so forth. They're so ubiquitous as part of our society that schools are simply going to be unable to divorce themselves completely from even just interactions with them for everyday business. So Mm. I I only see it as a temporary issue, but it is a significant issue now that it's become politicised and these blanket bans are being put in place. So the normal process of schools learning how to cope with changes and new technologies is being disrupted and will take longer now because of these external requirements. Education expert Dr Jason Sagami speaking there. The idea that school should be a preparation ground for the real world, it's not a particularly new idea, but it's interesting in the context of smartphones. So I put that question to Michael Carr-Gregg and here's what he had to say. It denies the developmental perspective. And as a child and adolescent psychologist, I'm acutely aware of the fact that Young people have 86 billion brain cells, but they're not all wired up yet. And you take the average year seven, year eight, year nine student, self-regulation isn't their strongest suit. And you wouldn't expect it to be because they've sort of got a Ferrari brain and bicycle brakes. So I think there are rules that need to be put in place and workplaces have rules as well. So an equal argument could be made that this is just preparing them for a workplace where there are going to be various restrictions about what they can and cannot do. So I don't know that that argument holds water. I sometimes wish that someone would impose a blanket ban on me using my smartphone because as much as I try and use it for good, it doesn't always work out that way. And sometimes I feel that if if somebody were to say, no, you can't use your phone in this way, in this circumstance, it would almost be a relief to me that I don't actually have to do it myself. And that's something that we hear from principals and teachers in schools around the country who say that when a blanket ban is imposed, you know, students are more productive, bullying goes down, students might be less distracted. So there does seem to be an advantage to having a blanket ban that comes from the very top. Okay, it is time for our headlines. It's Friday, July 7. I am joined by Tom Tilley. What is making news today? 
Well, Jan, the first story is an absolute cracker. The beef between Elon Musk's Twitter and the new Zuckerberg app Threads has gone to a whole nother level with Twitter sending a legal threat to Meta saying they have serious concerns that Meta Platforms has engaged in systematic, willful and unlawful misappropriation of Twitter's trade secrets and other intellectual property. Um, They accused Meta of tanking former Twitter employees to build the platform, saying they deliberately assigned these employees to develop, in a matter of months, Meta's copycat Threads app. Yeah, Meta says that's not the case. Their comms director has hit back saying that no one on the Threads engineering team is a former Twitter employee. Uh, But look, we were expecting a cage fight. It's not quite a cage fight, but (laughs) it is still a fight, isn't it? I reckon it's probably... Well, I want to see the cage fight as well, but this this is really interesting. Um, just in the first day, 30 million people have started using Threads, so that's not a bad start. There are a billion Instagram users, so given it's part of the Instagram community uh, or, or sort of going from that basis, it could, um, could see the numbers grow very quickly over the coming days. You're one of them, Jen, so what's it like? Yeah, well, it's interesting that Twitter should accuse Meta of uh, essentially copying its app because I, as somebody who wasted many hours on threads last night, they did copy Twitter. It's mm. a very, very similar if not the exact same user interface. It looks like Twitter. It, you can scroll like Twitter. You can search like Twitter. Um, so I think they have a point there. And it wouldn't be the first time that Zuckerberg has kind of copycatted another tech company. He took stories from Snapchat and he took reels from TikTok. And now this one seems to be taken from Twitter. Look, it was a weird feeling being part of this social network on its very first day in its very first 24 hours. It's going to be interesting to see how it progresses because I think it is bringing people over from Twitter who want to use it in the same way that they use Twitter, but it's connected to Instagram. So it pulls in a lot of people who would normally have used Instagram and not have used Twitter onto this platform and it puts them all together. And so that kind of changes the dynamic of the conversations had on that platform. And, you know, I think we'll need many more days and and weeks to kind of see how all of that plays out. But um yeah, interesting being there. I probably wouldn't have wanted to be Elon Musk in the last 24 hours. I would have been pissed off. And an apology for a racist newspaper ad, uh, this time from the Australian Financial Review. Its owners have apologised for running a full-page ad opposed to The Voice. So this cartoon, which was slammed as racist, what it showed was the West Farmers CEO and Yes 23 director Michael Cheney with his teal MP daughter Kate Cheney sitting on his lap um, like a little girl and he was seen handing $2 million of cash to Indigenous Yes campaigner Thomas Mayo. Now Thomas Mayo was drawn much smaller and, and looking like he's dancing for money. So this was why it was so heavily criticised. Um, the New South Wales Liberal MP Matt Keane said that it harked back to an era of the deep south in America. And Tom, many Indigenous Australians have also spoken out against the ad. Yeah, so it was placed by a group called Advance Australia and they're not apologising. They've hit back. Um, They're sort of spitting this as the Yes campaign is talking down to everyday Australians. They said Matt Keane can keep his elitist Sydney views to himself. 
Well, they didn't just say to himself. They said he they can, he can keep his elitist Sydney views to himself, Lisa Wilkinson and Peter Fitzsimons, which <laughs> I thought was a very weird reference as to why they would drag Lisa Wilkinson and Peter Fitzsimons into this. It seems to be this ongoing, uh, I suppose, campaign by the no side to paint anyone that criticises any of their tactics as elite. Mm. And uh, I, I don't know if that hugely resonates and I don't know how um, sort of genuine that is every time. Yeah, so they, they're trying to push this idea that, yeah, anyone who criticises the no campaign is playing the race card. So that's what they said about this, that Matt Keane and his elites are, are playing the race card straight off the top deck. But to criticise the no campaign is not calling no voters racist. Um, they were just calling this cartoon racist. The other interesting thing here, Jan, is we don't know who is donating to Advance Australia. Um, we won't know because of our electoral laws, we won't know until after the referendum. So, yeah, this has been mm. a very interesting little episode. Mm. We do know who is donating to the Yes campaign, though. West Farmers donated $2 million just this week, and there's also been donations received from BHP and Rio Tinto, mm. which that cartoon was, you know, uh, supposed to be satirising, albeit in a somewhat disgraceful way, in my opinion. And speaking of backdowns, the Home Affairs Minister, Claire O'Neill, has had to delete two tweets about Donald Trump Jr. So this was about her response to Trump Jr.'s postponed Australian speaking tour, and news of that broke earlier this week after his visa was only approved at the last minute. Now, in these tweets, Minister O'Neill said, "Geez, Donald Trump Jr. is a bit of a sore loser. His dad lost an election fair and square, but he says it was stolen. Now he's trying to blame the Australian government for his poor ticket sales and cancelled tour. Donald Trump Jr. has been given a visa to Australia. He didn't get cancelled. He's just a big baby who isn't very popular. All right, so, Claire O'Neill, she not holding back." <laughs> She really went for it. Guess on which platform that was? Twitter, of course. Um, so <laughs> the, the not friendly platform, yep. Yeah, so the reporting from the Australian newspaper is that Anthony Albanese's office reined her in and got her to delete the tweets. And look, I think that's a good call. I don't think that's the way a senior minister should be talking about someone who is the son of a former president who might be the future president. We're going to potentially have to deal with a Trump administration again. So to have a senior minister of our government slamming Donald Trump Jr. in this way, it's it's not a really mature way to go about politics. No, but look, there is a lot of immaturity in politics. And in, in speaking about who is going to have to deal with, you know, the a possible Trump administration, it is going to be Anthony Albanese. Our relationship with the United States is a very close one. So he's probably just fending off any future issues at this point yeah. by um, reining Claire O'Neill in. But it's, look, never tweet. Just never tweet. <laughs> this is a beautiful mantra that I live by. Never tweet. But you can thread. Exactly. <laughs> Let's see if the same level of, um, you know, reactionary commentary appears on threads as well. Well, maybe that was the advice from Albo's office. Look, um, Claire, get off Twitter. It's a bit antagonistic. Just get on threads and just calm down a bit. 
And staying with Australian politics, Linda Reynolds has allegedly threatened to sue Brittany Higgins for defamation. So Higgins um, posted on Twitter that she'd received a concerns notice from the senator and is considering her legal options. Um, The former Liberal staffer worked for Reynolds in 2019. Um, This is when she claims that she was sexually assaulted by her former colleague, Bruce Learman. He has always maintained his innocence. So this defamation threat is is really the latest in a series of incidents that have deteriorated that relationship between Linda Reynolds and Brittany Higgins, Tom. Yeah, well, just when you thought it couldn't get any worse, this defamation threat from Linda Reynolds um, came after Brittany Higgins made an Instagram post earlier in the week saying that Reynolds continues to harass me through the media and in the parliament. So this is what Reynolds is responding to. And, and talking about this, um, Linda Reynolds has been quoted as saying, I've had enough. I will not tolerate being defamed by her or anybody. This saga has been a difficult one to watch. Uh, and this seems like the, you know, I- inevitable next step in a relationship that has uh, broken down horribly and publicly. All right, that is it for your Monday to Friday briefing. Uh, Katrina Blouse will be bringing you um, a big, uh, long feature interview in the weekend briefing. Katrina, who are you speaking to? Hey, guys. Well, this weekend I'm jumping into the host chair. Uh, Poor Jamila has got COVID, but I got to do the most incredible interview with Georgie Purcell, who, if you don't know who she is, she's a 30-year-old MP from the Animal Justice Party, and she was elected to the Victorian Legislative Council in November last year. The reason she is so interesting is she stands out from other politicians because she took a completely different route to parliament. We talk about how she worked as a stripper and a topless waitress to pay her way through her uni law degree, but it was the worst moment of her life when she was outed against her will by somebody who went along to see her at work and posted a photo on Facebook and tagged her in it. And most of the people in her uni were tagged in that as well. This is an amazingly vulnerable chat about how she got through one of the darkest moments of her life and how no matter what you've done in your past or what's happened to you in your past should never hold you back from chasing your dreams. I absolutely loved chatting to Georgie and I can't wait for you guys to hear this incredible chat. All right, that is your weekend briefing. Um, We'll catch you later, Jan. And thank you so much for listening, um, particularly this week as we experimented with the format. More updates on that on Monday. And a huge thank you to our hardworking team, senior producer Eleanor Harrison-Dengue, producer Helen Smith, editor Matt Kuzkari, and the rest of the hardworking team here at The Briefing and Listener. Listener.